0: Our scripture reading this morning is once again from the book of Numbers, the sixth chapter, verses 22 through 27. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We thank you that you have called us to engage in the study of that word. And we pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, this is uh, the perfect blessing, part two. Uh, Last week we looked at this entire text, and the central part of this text we looked at uh, in general detail by looking at the first word and the last word, and this morning we're going to go into a little bit more detail just on that central section, the language of the blessing itself. But remember, this is the perfect blessing. This text that we have read comes in three sections, not two, not four, but three Uh, There's an opening introduction, then there's the blessing itself, and then there's a conclusion. And that three is not accidental because it's an indicator of the perfection, three being a number of perfection in the Old Testament of this blessing. And of course, the word bless is used not two times, not four times, but three times, once in the introduction, once in the blessing proper, and once in the conclusion, Uh, The divine name occurs uh, not two times, not four times, but three times precisely. Once in the second slot in Hebrew, in each of those lines of the blessing itself. And of course, the poem is made up of three lines, with the first line having three words, and the last line having seven words, and the central line having five words, which is perfectly situated between three and seven. There's perfection all over the place in this psalm. Later, by the way, we're going to look at Psalm 121. And uh, there's a smidgen of this same kind of mathematical counting. We're going to look at what the mathematical center of that psalm is. So, the perfect blessing, part two. Uh, What we want to do is just look at some of the details in this particular text, looking at each of those three lines to unpack a little bit for us uh, the nature of the blessing that God ordained for the sons of Aaron to pronounce over the children of Israel in the Old Covenant and certainly a blessing that is still appropriate to be pronounced over God's people in the New Covenant. Keep in mind that virtually all of the, uh, the apostolic letters in the New Testament, uh, they all begin with a greeting and they all end with a blessing. Uh, the Apostle Paul routinely pronounces blessing over the life of the church as he writes letters to the church. And it's for that reason and a good number of other reasons that historically the church has always concluded its worship of God with a word of blessing, which I've indicated in uh, a previous series way back in the day, Uh, just to refresh us on that, there's a difference between doxology, which we have just sung, and benediction. When we sing a doxology, the direction of the language is from us to God. Doxology is a word of praise. When there's a benediction, the speech is the opposite direction. The speech of benediction goes from God to us. And uh, in short, it's a word of empowerment. And we're going to look at that now. So we're just going to look. I have, there are three lines, so I got three points. And my first point is bless and keep. Bless and keep. Because that's the core language in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. Each one of these lines is going to be made up of two prayer requests, so to speak, that go together. The first ones are bless and keep. Now, bless is, is not a word that we use frequently or at all Outside of you know, religious context, it's a word that's pretty much restricted to religious speech. Um, we might say, if somebody coughs, or in particular if somebody sneezes, we might say, bless you. Or we might say, God bless you. Uh, or if we come from a, a cult, another culture, we might say uh, something else that is a... Uh, a, a word of a good wish. But outside of that, we don't use this word, bless, very much. We do use it some in older, more traditional translations of the Bible. But then the speeches from us to God, like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. But there we're blessing God. Here God is blessing us. So it's not a word that we use very commonly, And I like to simplify things. And so if I were to try to find just one English word that is the best substitute word. If if somebody says, when we're asking God to bless us, what are we really asking him to do? Can you give us just one substitute word for the word bless? Because we don't use that very often in ordinary speech. What word would it be? And it's very clear to me that that word would be empower. That's the, And that is a word that we use ordinarily uh, in our speech. That's the, the heart of what blessing is when the blessing is coming from God to us. Because keep in mind, this exact same Hebrew word is used in two different directions. It's used for us blessing God, and it's used for God blessing us, but with a different sense. Uh, and here, when it's God blessing us, it's God blessing empowering us. And most broadly, it's God empowering us to experience the abundant life that He originally created us for. And it's God empowering us to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to redeem us for. Jesus said, I have not come to harm you, to kill you, to destroy you. I've come that you might have life in all of its abundance, that abundant life empowering us to live that abundant life. Now how many areas of your life has God created? All of them. Over how many areas of your life is Jesus Lord? All of them. So in how many areas of life is God intending to empower you to experience the abundant life? In all of them. Sometimes when people say to me, you know, we get students that come and visit to see if they're going to attend Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, or maybe they're already here, maybe they're coming because it's in the seminary that's in their backyard. Geography, often more than theology, uh, determines where somebody goes to seminary. And so they'll say to me, I'm hearing this word Reformed. Uh, What is Reformed? And often if I want to just give it to them in in short form, it's just we believe that Jesus is Lord of absolutely everything. I mean, that's kind of the heart and soul of reform. The supremacy of God in absolutely every area of life. God created every area of life Jesus is redeeming every area of life, and so this blessing, this empowerment, pertains to every area of life. Let's just look at a couple of illustrations. We're going to take them from the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis has a theme, and if I were to articulate that theme in just one word, the theme would be blessing. Now, why do I say the theme of Genesis is blessing? Because I look at the repetition of key concepts and key vocabulary, and the word for blessing occurs 88 times in the book of Genesis. Remember, as I've said before, your English teacher taught you to vary your vocabulary so that what you write is not B-O, boring. Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat their vocabulary so that people would get the message. And so when you see in the book of Genesis, this blessing, 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 that's the theme. God creating and redeeming, that's for blessing. That's why Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, because he understood the theology of why God created and why God had sent him to redeem. So just a couple of examples out of the book of Genesis. And uh, first of all, Genesis 17 and verse 16. Notice it starts by saying, God saying, I will bless her. Well, I wonder what he means by I will bless her. If we keep reading, we'll find out. Notice it says, I will bless her and surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. See, what's God doing when he's blessing her? What's the E word? He's empowering her. He's empowering her to do what? To have children. And notice, he's empowering her to have a lot of children. Nations worth of children. Uh, the, The point is, empowerment for abundant life, one illustration of that is empowerment to have children. Um, How many of you have ever had children? I can tell you why you've had children. Because God empowered you to have children. That's the power of God. Remember the first thing that God said when he created us in Genesis 1. Let's make humanity in our image. And then God blessed them and said, and what did he say? He said, be fruitful and multiply. And we're now at about seven billion. You see, a powerful word God spoke. So the power to produce children. Let's look at another example. Let's look at Genesis 24, 35. Here, one of Abram's servants is uh, on a journey to secure a wife for his son. And in speaking to the uh, prospective family, he says in verse 35, The Lord has blessed my master abundantly. Well, I wonder what he means by blessing my master abundantly. If we keep reading, maybe we'll find out. Notice it says, He has become wealthy. Now, that's in my translation. Your translation might say, He's become great. Okay. Let's just for the sake of the argument take away the word wealthy and just leave the word great. I wonder what the author means by great. Well maybe if we keep reading we'll find out. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. I wonder what kind of greatness is referred to here. It's wealth, which is why the NIV translates it as wealthy because that's the point of the text. So Our first illustration, God empowers to produce children. Our second illustration, God empowers to produce wealth. And as I always say, those of you who know who have children, the more children you have, the more more wealth you need, especially when it comes time for college. Um, Empowerment, see, these are just illustrations. Let's look at another one. This time, let's go to Genesis chapter 14 and verse 19. This is when Melchizedek is pronouncing a blessing. And Melchizedek is priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemy into your hand. Now what does blessed mean? Well, how was Abram blessed? He was not blessed in terms of having children. He was not blessed in terms of producing wealth. He was blessed as he went into battle and he came out the victor and not the loser. God had, what's the E word? God had empowered him to be victorious in battle. Just illustrations, When God blesses, he gives people the power for life. Whatever that looks like in your lives. Maybe you have the power to do well in mathematics. Maybe you have the power to do well in fixing an automobile. Maybe you have the power to... Uh, be extremely good at social relationships, getting to know people, connecting people with other people. Maybe you have the power to be a great mom. God's given my third son, Mark Jr., remarkable power as a dad. I just, they're in San Antonio, so I... I've, we have visited, but, you know, you, you watch from a distance. And this thing called Facebook is marvelous because you can see what's going on in their lives. Um, but to see what my, my son is doing as a dad, as a young dad. And I look back at where I was as a young father when I was in his situation. This young man is light years ahead of where I was in his ability to be a father involved in the life of his son. Where did he get that? Well, I hope he got a little bit of something from me, but it's God's empowerment, you see? It's the power of God that's at work. What, 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 what ability do you have? Do you have the ability to breathe right now? You know why? That's God's power. It's the blessing of God. It's not just a natural phenomenon. I, we can explain it scientifically. I mean, I can't. Somebody can. How it all works with, you know, I don't even want to go there. But, but theologically, I can give you another explanation for it. It's the blessing of God on your lives. Whatever power you have. This is why the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me bless His holy name because he realized that everything that he had and everything that he was and everything that he could do, it all came down from God. It was all God's blessing. And since it all comes from God as blessing, it all goes back to God as blessing. Because God blesses us, we in turn bless God. Now when we bless God, we're not empowering God to experience an abundant life. We are praising God For the blessings that He has given to us, which is why the NIV does not translate Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, but it translates it, praise the Lord, O my soul, because that's what we are doing. When God is blessing us, He's empowering us. When we are blessing God, we're praising Him for the empowerment that He has given to us, which is why that little song that we learned when we were young, count your many blessings, name them one by one. You see, count your many blessings... See what see what God has done. That, that is the overarching uh, dimension of this uh, benediction. It's that prayer for blessing. The Lord bless you. The Lord, may the Lord empower you in every area of life. But notice it goes on to say, and keep. Because We don't want this blessing to be a flash in the pan, right? Like a bolt of lightning. Boom! It's there. It's real big. It's real bright. And then it's gone. We want this blessing to be something that endures. And so it's followed by that word keep. The Hebrew word is shamar and and it can be translated keep. It could be translated guard. It could be translated protect. Let's turn to Uh, one of the wonderful protection, guard, keep psalms, 121. Turn to Psalm 121. We'll just take a brief look at it. It's one that's familiar uh, to many of us, no doubt. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who... Keeps, watches, guards. That's our word. First time. Indeed, he who keeps, watches, guards over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches, keeps, guards over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will... Keep, protect, guard, watch, same word from all harm. He will watch, keep, protect, guard over your coming and uh, will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. I, I wish I really, really wish there were one more. I wish there were seven, but there 's not i can 't make the text say something that it doesn 't say. There's only six. Okay, in this short psalm, we have the Hebrew verb shamar six times. Whether your translation says keep, protect, watch, guard. Hopefully your translation repeats the same English word, whatever they've chosen, so you can see that repetition. Can you summarize the core message of this psalm in one word? Keep, guard, watch protect. How do we know that's the main idea in this psalm? Because this psalmist followed the advice of his Hebrew mother. He repeated his vocabulary so that people would get the point. Now one more note, just, just so that you see that this, that this keep guard watch is really the, the central idea in this psalm. Um, Hebrew poetry is normally made up of poetic lines that come in two halves. For example, a wise son brings joy to his father, a foolish son grief to his mother. It's one poetic line, it comes in two halves, and the two halves correspond. Now, if all the lines in this poem are that typical two-half line... We're going to end up with an even number of lines. Uh, these, these half lines are called cola. We're going to have an even number of cola or half lines. And if we have an even number, we can't have a central half line, can we? We've got to have an odd number. So the poet throws in one special line that has three of these cola in it. I can't say three half lines, right? But three of these cola, that gives us an odd number so that we could actually count them and find out which one is the middle. And if we count from the beginning to the end and we go down eight cola, I mean, from yeah, count down eight, if we go from the end and count up and go up eight, we find our central colon and here's what that central colon says. Verse five, the first part the Lord watches over you. It's not an accident. That phrase, the Lord watches over you, is the mathematical center of the poem because the poet not only wants to reinforce the message by repeating the verb, guard, guard, keep, 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 but also by telling you who in particular is the one that does the guarding, the keeping, the protecting, and how does he underscore that? He didn't have bold, he didn't have italic, he couldn't change the font, he couldn't change the color of the font, but he could count, and he could put the central idea right in the very center of the poem. The Lord is the one who watches over, and he's the one who keeps. He's the one who protects. So the first dimension of the benediction is may the Lord empower you and may he empower you not as a flash in the pan, but may he empower you and keep that empowerment going all the days of your life. Well, then we come to verse 25. Uh, shine and gracious. Gracious shine and gracious. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Now, obviously, when the poet says, may the Lord make his face shine on you, he's using metaphorical language, right? Because what doesn't God have? He doesn't have a face. Uh, remember the catechism, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. So God is spirit, but the Bible has to help us finite creatures understand the infinite, and so it often speaks of God uh, as if God were a human being, God's arm, God's eyes, God walking. Uh, It it speaks of God in this metaphorical language, drawing analogies with human existence, and so here we have that, may God make his face shine uh, on you. So what what is this expression, may he make his face shine on you? Well, a, a good number of places this expression is used in the book of Psalms. Uh, for example, Psalm 119, 135, where it's coupled with God teaching us. But, but really, it's used most consistently. Psalm thirty-one, sixteen. Psalm 80, verse 3, verse 7, verse 19 it's used most consistently this way. God, make your face shine and we will be saved. The shining face of God and salvation. See, shining uh, makes us think of a day like today if we look out the window. What's shining? The sun is shining. And so this is not a dark day. This is a light day. Shining like the sun. Uh, Sometimes the Bible uses imagery of God, uh, not just God is king, uh, God is shepherd, God is refuge, but Psalm 84, the Lord God is sun, S-U-N. He's likened to the sun because the sun is light and light is life. And so God making his face shine on us is, is metaphorical language for God filling us up with light. Uh, and light and life go together, don't they? Isn't that why Jesus said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, I once mistakenly said that in in darkness, like at the very bottom of the ocean, uh, there's no life. And and a scientific friend of mine quickly corrected me on that, that there is... light down there but but without knowing any of the science i retorted and said yeah but the only reason there can be any life down there is because there's life up above and what else is up above is light up above so okay i was wrong but my point still sticks that light and life Uh, go together. We see that in the creation story, don't we? At the very beginning, it was darkness hovering, darkness hovering over the surface of the deep. And what was the first thing God did? God said, Let there be light. I've been thinking about preaching a sermon. I don't know if I'll do it or not because it's another one of those creation kind of on the edge ones. But I've been thinking about preaching a sermon on what's going on with God bounding the darkness and God bounding the sea. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, why are we told that? What's it communicating to us that God separates the light from the darkness and the dry land from the sea? And he names one one thing and he names the other the other thing, but maybe that for another time. The point is light and life, which is why the psalmists always say, make your face shine and we will be saved. Now here's a slight problem. The problem is, when we as New Testament creatures hear the word saved, our thinking starts to get narrow. When we think of somebody being saved, we think they're going to go to heaven, not... We think their sins have been forgiven. So when we think of somebody getting saved, we think of narrowly their sins are forgiven so that they can go to... Old Testament folks thought that also. Just not narrowly. Just find occurrences in the book of Psalms where God's saving people. And here's the kind of thing that's going on. God, I'm I'm being falsely accused and I have a court date tomorrow morning. Save me. Now he's not saying forgive my sins so I can go to heaven. He's saying I want to hear the judge say not... Not guilty. Save means vindicate. Or somebody says, God, I'm going out to battle tomorrow. Save me. That means let me be the the victor and not the loser. Save me. Or somebody else will say, uh, God, I am sick. Save me. Now save is another word for what H word? Heal. Heal me. You see, save is, save, save is not kind of a narrow spiritual term. Salvation is as wide as the creation, because after all, who's doing the saving? The, the God who first and foremost was revealed to us as our creator. And when we rebelled against God, what areas of life did that mess up? All of them. So what areas of life is God going to be interested in saving? All of them. And so you see, make your face shine. It's an image of, it's an image of salvation. It's, it's, if this room were pitch black, it, it's weird to be in a totally dark room, right? It's hard, it's hard to get into a totally dark room. But if, if, if you get into a totally dark room and you, you can't see anything, not the hand in front of your face, and then somebody turns a light on, what areas of that room are still dark? None. The light fills everything. That's this make your face shine so that we can be saved. And the light of the gospel can transform every area of our lives. Now, that's why it's followed by be gracious. See, because this salvation is not something that we can claim a right to. It's all of God's grace. Uh, Your translation might have the word favor. We use the word favor in two different ways. We use favor in terms of having a favorable attitude... But we also use the word favor in terms of favorable action. Um, The judge was favorable to me. Good attitude. But if I say to you, would you do me a favor? I wouldn't be super thrilled if you said, I like you. But I'm not going to do anything. Because do me a favor is asking for what A word? It's asking for action. And that's this, you see, God making his face shine is not something that we deserve. It's something that comes to us freely by the grace of God. But it's not only God's favorable attitude. It's also God willing to go into action. Did you catch that when we were reading the, uh, um, what does the conclusion of the Lord's prayer mean? It says, we have made all our requests of you because as our all-powerful king, you not only want to. Do you believe that? That God really, that's what we confessed. We confess that God wants to and is able to give us some of what is good. That's not what we confessed, is it? We bring our requests because you not only want to but are able to give us all that is good. That's His grace, favorable attitude, favorable action. Uh, God's grace is free. You don't have to. Don't, so don't feel. Did, did, uh, don't don't feel like. There's some good enough level that you have to rise to before you can ask God or expect God to bring this blessing into your life. You'll wait forever. Realize that you already have the good enough and His name is Jesus. That He's lived a perfect life of righteousness in your place. He's died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He is your qualification It's not based on how well you're doing this morning or yesterday or tomorrow. It's based on how well Christ has done for you and he's done it perfectly well. And so the grace is yours. It's yours freely because you're united to Christ by grace and through faith. Okay, one more line. Verse 26, turn and give. Turn and give. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now, here we have the face again, um, at least in my translation. Uh, uh, last week, I think Ray asked me a question. He said, why is it that in some translations you have face and that word countenance? Like the e, if you're reading the English Standard Version, you probably have face make your face shine, and something like lift up your countenance. Why do you have two different words? And here's the answer. The reason why the ESV has two different words is because the king had two different words. King James, that is. Uh, And the ESV is standing in the tradition of the king. But if we ask a deeper question, are there two different words in the Hebrew text, then the answer is no. There's only one word in the Hebrew text, and it's the word face. So countenance is a good word if you want to preserve the tradition. Countenance is not a good word if you want to speak normal English. Because when's the last time you were in the grocery line and you said to somebody, Oh man, I just love your countenance. You have got the prettiest countenance I have seen all day. I mean, we would probably get it, right? But it's just not the way we speak. Um, And so it's it's tough because... what. Uh, the ironic benediction, so deep in the tradition that, you know, do we give up the word countenance? Uh, oddly enough, the English Standard Version kind of prides itself on the fact that if there's one word in Hebrew, we're going to repeat that word in English, but here they don't. And uh, they go kind of against their philosophy. Why? I've never talked to anybody on the ESV committee, but I think I know the answer. It's because of the language of the king. They're sticking with King James uh, at this particular point. It's kind of like when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray thee and thou, don't we? We don't pray that way any other place. Most of us, some of us might still pray with these and thou's. Uh, but if you do, my guess is you're older than I am and I'm 60. But uh, you, you, you still have that in your, in your prayer vocabulary, but you don't use it anywhere else. Um, th- the point being, we're... Ray, it's just one word in Hebrew. And so there, the countenance, face it's, it's all really the same thing. But there's a difference between make the face shine and turn the face toward. Now, I, I, did, have one, he, I did have one seminary professor that lectured this way the, the entire hour. And so, sometimes he would put his hand on his forehead and he would turn a little bit, but his eyes were closed. Uh, he, he, he lectured with his back toward us the whole time i don 't know maybe his like lecture notes were on the back of his eyelids or something and he i 'm not sure what was going on there. It was a little bit strange, but brilliant fellow learned a lot from him It', it was just a little bit strange but we have something kind of like this don 't turn your back on me now when would somebody we, we can use that in a couple of ways, but you might think of two people who are having an argument, and the one just turns around, and the other one says, don't turn your back on me. Parents might say this in particular to kids who might be prone to do this kind of thing, uh, not the most respectable body language, yes? That's kind of what's here. You see, there is this expression in the Old Testament, the hidden face of God. God hides his face. That means God turns around so that we see his back. We can't see his face. That's an image of God's disfavor. Now, in the prophets, God hides his face because of Israel's sin. But in the Psalms, God hides his face. And the psalmist often has no clue. As to why. I've been walking the right path. I've been doing the right thing. I've been trusting. Why is your face hidden from me? That's a way of saying, why am I not experiencing the favor that I read about in the scriptures that is mine by your grace, that hidden face of God? The hidden face of God can be coupled with his anger, with God forsaking, with disaster, with calamity. So this this part of the benediction is so marvelous when it says, turn your face toward me. See, the presumption is that, that in our perception, at least, we're out of favor with God. And we're asking him to turn his face toward us, to favor us once again. No anger. Uh, no, no calamity, no disaster, no trouble, no forsaking. We're asking God to be who he is as our faithful covenant-keeping God. Now, the Father can turn his face toward you. This morning, this afternoon, all the days of your life. And you know, though, that his eyes are too pure to look on evil aren't they? Isn't that what the prophet tells us? So if his eyes are too pure to look on sin and we have sin in our lives, how can we ever hope that God could turn his face toward us? It's because he turned his back on his son. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could put that in another language. Why have you hidden your face from me? And while the psalmist felt as if God had hidden the face, and we at times feel as if God has forsaken us, he never has because he cannot forsake or abandon his people ever. But Jesus not only felt it, he experienced it. He experienced the ultimate hidden face of God so that God could always turn his face toward you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not an antinomian, but this is true. It doesn't matter how much sin is in your life. God can turn his face toward you because that sin has been taken care of on the cross by Christ. It does not in any way, the face of God turning toward you does not in any way depend on how well you are doing. It only depends on how well Christ has done it for you. And that we spell perfect. And so the, the, the face of God toward you is yours by grace through faith. And the, the last one is give you peace. Uh, I thought, man, this is really going to be a short sermon. I'm going to be done like in 10 minutes on this one. May he give you peace. Not limited, as the English, to the elimination of internal strife or the elimination of external strife. But as we spoke last week, and I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Uh, Sometime today, read like the first 11 verses of Proverbs chapter 3. Because Proverbs chapter 3, in the first two verses, talk about God giving Peace And it's the word shalom, the same word is here. And then just read the next verses to see how that shalom shows up. Uh, in fact, in, in the bulletin, you got a head start uh, at the beginning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. See, shalom in terms of a straight path in life... Um, Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth, and then your barns will be brimming over. Uh, Wholeness in your finances. Wholeness in your relationships. uh, Wholeness in how many areas of life? In all of them. Proverbs 3, 1 through 11 only give us some illustrations, but they make the same point that is made in so many other places in the Scriptures. See, the, the Hebrew understanding of peace, completeness, wholeness, broad, not narrow, in all areas of life. And theologically, the reason why the Redeemer is bringing shalom into every area of life is because before the Redeemer was the Redeemer, the Redeemer was the, starts with a C, the Creator. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the most fundamental theological truth, uh, in, in, at least in some ways, is this simple teaching of the Bible, that your Redeemer was first of all your creator. And if we believe that, we realize that his redemption is cosmic. And that's why in the Old Testament and in the New, typically we get this, this articulation of what redemption looks like. It's the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. That's the goal. The goal of redemption is as broad as the goal of creation. Well, let's conclude uh, just with two S words, source and scope. Uh, just to underscore the source of blessing, the poet won't let us miss it, will he? The Lord bless you. The Lord make his face shine. The Lord turn his face toward you. The divine name occurring three times because the psalmist doesn't want you to think that this, this benediction is just kind of an accidental good fortune that you might experience. It comes as a very personal gift from the good God of the covenant maker of heaven and earth, redeemer of God's elect. The source is his blessing and the source is his grace, whether it's the language of be gracious or the language of making the face shine or the language of turning the face toward, this benediction is just permeated with the grace of God. So the source of the blessing is the Lord in his grace and the scope of blessing, to just put this in its context... Genesis chapter 5, first like two verses. It gives us a little summary of the whole creation story. And it says, God created humanity and God blessed them. The very first thing the Bible tells us God did was that he blessed. And remember from last week, Luke twenty four fifty the very last thing Jesus did as he was ascending to heaven was he raised his hands over the disciples and he blessed them. And when we get to the very end of the Bible, the very last words of the Bible from Revelation 22, 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the scope of your blessing that runs from beginning to end of scripture and that covers every area of life. We thank you for that source, which is you, our personal God, and, and your grace to us in Christ. And we realize that in our lives, there are many areas where we don't see this blessing right now. We realize that in heaven we're going to experience it perfectly. We're not there yet. We realize that we have prayed and you have taught us to pray that that kingdom would come and that will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so grant us grace and faith. You've told us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word. And as we've listened to this word this morning, Grant us grace to trust you for this benediction to come in our lives where we need it. And to walk by faith and not by sight, to believe in our hearts that it's ours, even though we can't see it in our circumstances yet. And grant us a a persevering faith to trust in you all the way to the end, until we experience the fullness and the, the, the completeness of this benediction when we see Christ face to face and we become like him, just as he is in all of his perfection. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.